And as you're seated, if you want to actually turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 13. And our series that we're going through, we're going through 1 Corinthians 13, and our series is The Wonders of His Love. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is he's trying to show us a more excellent way of being and of living. And what he's telling us is that there's a better way of going about life than the way most people in the world are. And especially the, the people in the church in Corinth, they were um, having a really hard time figuring out how uh, difficult people, headstrong people could get along together. And he said there's a more excellent way. And he paints this beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful depictions of what real love is in all of literature. And so we've been looking at that, and our key theme is like, before we can express this kind of love to others, we need to experience it from Christ. That this beautiful picture of love in 1 Corinthians, first of all, is a depiction of the way Christ has loved us, and then it becomes a model for how we can love others. And what we've seen, he begins to tell us that, look, if you don't have the love of God that's found in Christ, it doesn't matter what other competencies you have or what other successes you have. If you don't ultimately have this, you don't have anything. And then he uh, paints this picture where he gives this kind of banner that love is patient and love is kind. And then there's this cycle of eight different, it is not. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not resentful. It's not these things. And then he kind of ties it up with it rejoices in the truth. So love is patient and kind and it's joyful. And then in between, there's all these things that it's not. So we're going to take the first four in that cycle from 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verses 4 and 5. And the first four are that love is not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, and it's not rude. So kind of this fourfold thing. All right, it's not envious, it's not envious, it's not uh, boastful, arrogant, or rude. And we want to think, all right, what ties those things together? Is this just kind of a random list, or is there something that unites these? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that beautifully illustrates the way Jesus is not these things. What does it mean to, to demonstrate a kind of love that's not envious, that's not arrogant, that's not rude, that's not self-seeking, that doesn't promote itself, that doesn't exalt itself? And I think one of the most beautiful stories that encapsulates that and expresses that is Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet in John 13. You know, it's a symbolic act of just profound self-giving and service and is meant to become a pattern for how we're supposed to live. And you know, if you behold Jesus washing the disciples' feet and washing your feet, if that can, if you can behold that, you know, one of the, the, the ways it can change you is that if that becomes your model for for godly leadership, if that becomes your model for heavenly greatness, if that becomes a central image to think about how you live and love, it can be one of the most profound realities that ever grasp your heart. So my hope for you today, my hope for me, my hope for you, is that we'll just catch a, catch a snippet, a glimpse of the, the beauty and the glory and the humility of Christ and see Him demonstrating this more excellent way of living and leading and loving, and we'll be placed on the path that can bring true life. So as we see Him doing this to us and for us, it'll change us and empower us. But first, let's just think, get clear in our minds, all right, what are we not supposed to do? Love is not, it doesn't envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant or rude. So think first, let's just think, all right, what, 
What kind of ties those things together? What are they? And as I thought about it, I think each of these things are illustrations of how you, these are unloving responses to success. So envy is the unloving response to the success of another. Uh, boasting is the unloving response to your success. Arrogance is what's fueling both of those things. And then rudeness, being rude, is what is manifest by those things. So let's think about like envy. All right, what is that? You know, all the different kind of words, like envy, jealousy, covetous, greed. How do they all relate? You know, think about like pity. Pity asked, all right, why me? Why is this happening to me? But envy is different because it says, why not me? So envy happens when you look at others' success and you think, well, why not me? Envy is when you're unhappy at the happiness of others or you weep because they're rejoicing or you rejoice because they're weeping. Jealousy tries to guard what's yours. Envy wants what's not. And you know, envy, how, how can you discern, how can you tell if you're uh, battling an envious heart? Well, you can tell the way that it comes out in children. Whenever you hear a child say, normally, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Oh, he got a cookie? That's not fair. Oh, you, they got a present? That's not fair. They got to go to the birthday party? That's not fair. They got this? That's not fair. They don't mean it's not fair. They mean, I want that. Why did they get what I don't get to have? That's not fair. And of course, you all know how this comes out in adults. Must be nice. Oh, they get to go on a vacation. Well, must be nice. Now, about three or four years ago, I'm so glad that Gray and Dixie are here this morning. So if you don't know, Gray and Dixie, they were one of the founding kind of elders of our church. And this past year, moved away to Alabama. And we're going to introduce some of our other elders today. And so they're here for our elders dinner, which was last night. And I am blaming Gray for this. Because when we did this series on envy and the seven deadly sins, um, somehow that phrase, must be nice kind of filtered in and became like a running inside joke in the church. So if you're new and you're ever like talking to someone and you say, man, we were at Disney yesterday and the traffic was just terrible. And they say, oh, at Disney must be nice. Uh, they're not being, that's an inside joke about that. You know, that's, that's what that's a reference to. But you all know how it can filter in. And it can be subtle as you're watching and looking. Ooh, must be nice. So envy says, I'm bitter because others are better. And then, and then what boasting does, so envy is the unloving response to someone else's success. Boasting is my response, the unloving response to my success. So I start to boast. Um, and then I think arrogance is the attitude that fuels those two things. And then rudeness is what results. You know, to be rude in sense is a, any form of just indecency and propriety. Uh, you know, you're never rude to people you want to embrace. You're never rude to people who you think can help you. So arrogance often fuels the rudeness. So let's look now at an image. In John chapter 13, let's look at a story that I think embodies a love that is not these things. So we're going to go to John 13 and just kind of get the context. John 13 through 17, those five chapters is one major block. It's a unit. 
moving into what's called the farewell discourse. And so Jesus has moved out of his public ministry in John 1 through 12. And then now he's moving into a private ministry. And so for five hours, he's about to intentionally train and teach his disciples about how they're supposed to carry on his mission once he goes away. Now, this is a this is the darkest night of Jesus's life. It's a night of difficulty. It's a night of uncertainty. It's a night of fear. He's going to announce his betrayal. He's going to announce their denial. He's going to announce his upcoming death and glorification, his departure from the world. And he's going to tell them, I'm about to go away, and this is good for you. And it's really hard for them to understand and believe that. But what happens in this section is we get the 1 Corinthians 13 type of love demonstrated and illustrated. And in John 1 through 12, the key theme, the key words are, are life and light. So over 50 times is the word life. Over 30 times is the word light. And so it's, Jesus has come into the darkness and he's bringing light and life into the darkness. But you only have the word love six times. But then from 13 to 17, love takes the center stage. And now love, you have the word 31 times as he's showing this is what real love is. And it just amazed me the parallel. Our men, we've been going through, you know, from James all the way to Jude, and we were going through John's letters, and he structures, it's beautiful and brilliant, he structures his letters the same way, where the key themes of what it means to walk in the light, because God is light, what it means to walk in love, because God is love, and that's what the whole gospel is demonstrating. But what we're going to see the dynamic is that before we can express this kind of love to others, we got to experience it. So let's experience it. Try and enter in the structure of the whole chapter. It's one big, you know, it's a five chapter unit that all goes together. But this first part, one through five, is going to set the stage of the act of washing their feet. Uh, six through eleven, he's going to have a dialogue back and forth with Peter because Peter does not understand what's happening. And then in verse twelve through twenty, he's going to try and explain it. So let's follow along. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And then when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that's what I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than a master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we'll, we'll pause uh, right there. So two things I just really want you to enter into and what I want us to experience is first, just let's try to experience the wonders of his love and try to imaginatively imagine, <laughs> that's, to imagine what it would be like to be there and to see it and experience it. And I want to first just experience the wonders of his love and then think about how we can then express the way of that example. So first, they experience the wonders of his love. Notice what, I mean, John is very clear in what's motivating him, what's driving him. See that in verse 1 and 2, having loved his own, his own, he loved them to the very end. That's what's driving them. In, in verse 34, he's going to tell them that, uh, uh, that he's given them this new command that they love one another as he has loved them. Then he's going to tell them in 14 that greater love has nothing than this. And someone lays down his life for his, his friends. And I now call you friends. And this is going to be one of the major themes running through the whole thing. But that's what motivates us. He's loving them. But notice the time frame. Notice how Beautiful and amazing and almost unbelievable. He's loving them in the midst of his pain. You know, this is the darkest night that he will experience in his earthly life. You know, his death is looming. The deepest pain. There's a beautiful back and forth at the end of this chapter where he says, My heart is troubled. Because I've got a heart filled with anguish. And then he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. My heart is almost breaking because of the trouble and anguish, but don't let yours be. I'm going to bear it so you don't have to. This is the darkest night of his life, and yet he's still loving them. And you think about what pain does to you. Um, pain turns you inward. You know, physical pain can just dominate all of your thoughts and make you utterly kind of not self-centered, but it's just what you, you think about. And you think about how emotional pain can cause you to be so reserved and so guarded and so withdrawn. Pain of any type turns you inward to guard and protect. It can generate self-pity. And then notice how he's able to give and serve even though his heart is breaking. It's just a remarkable thing. Like, how do you keep going when your heart's breaking? How do you keep going loving those around you when you're sorrowful? I mean, isn't it even possible to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, always serving, always looking? I mean, what wonders of his love that he can love them even though he is experiencing such pain. So he loves them during his pain, but then he also loves them despite their problems. It was a beautiful phrase where it says, Jesus knowing, verse 3. It says it again in verse 1. Jesus knew all the things. What did he know? He knew who he was, but he also knew who they were. I mean, can you imagine the scene as he sits down and takes the hand of each of them, or takes the foot of each of them and looks into the eyes looks into the eyes of the one he knows is the betrayer, looks in the eyes of the one he knows is the denier, looks into their eyes of the doubters and still washes and still serves. He serves them all. Judas is about to betray. Peter is about to deny, but every one of them are about to abandon 
and leave. And he loves them and serves them despite their problems. He knows. He washes their feet. He knows what they're going to do and still serves. I mean, just think about how hard it is to give love to people when you're not getting anything out of it. I mean, how eager would you be to serve someone that you know is about to stab you in the back? Like, it's not a question whether they will. They will. You know it. Would you be very eager to serve them? How eager are we to love people we know are about to scandalously deny and curse that they even know us? You know, he's loving despite not getting anything out of it. And, you know, that's a challenge for us because we just swim in a world of kind of corporate consumer capitalism where the laws of the market shape every interaction we have. And just the laws of the market are you have to create win-win dynamics. So here's the, the way uh, the market works. You provide a good and service at a price I'm willing to pay. I receive that good and service and will pay you something greater than your cost of production. And then everybody wins. And it's a beautiful system for running an economy. But what happens when people stop winning? You know, what happens when we're not getting our money's worth? And, you know, it's one thing to have that type of mentality. I mean, that's just how, like, buying tires works. That's just how tires work. But you know what doesn't work that way? Marriages, friendships, parenting, neighboring, churches don't work that way. These type of relationships aren't built on the logic of the market economy. It's not, I'm in this as long as I'm getting my money's worth, but as soon as I stop getting my money's worth, I'm out. That's not the way real relationships work. And in his kingdom, we have a whole different cost-benefit analysis. And it's amazing. He is loving and serving and giving to them, knowing all of them are going to fail him. Every single one of them. And he loves them and serves them anyway. And so I just want, like, where does that kind of like poise come from? Where does that kind of internal strength where you can still give and not worry at all about the return you're getting? And then you look, I wonder if there's something just deep in verse one and verse three where it says, He knew, like, He knew His hour had come and that He was going back to the Father. He knew that the Father had given him all things into his hand. He was not anxious about asserting his status. He didn't have to worry about making sure that everyone in the room knew he was the smartest one in the room, even though he was. He didn't have to worry about everyone in the room knowing that he was the most powerful person in the room, even though he was utterly secure and stable in the relationship with the Father. And then he can give service and love to them. It's a beautiful picture of how he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're perfect. He doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because what we bring to his table to serve him. He doesn't love us because we're beautiful. You know, it's his love that makes us these things. He doesn't love you because you're beautiful. It's his love that will make you beautiful if you're going to be beautiful. It's his love that makes you good if you're ever going to be made good. You know, he knew who he was. No existential crisis, no identity angst. And then he could serve them. And I think it's, it's hard for us to kind of feel the shocking force of what it would have been like to see him stoop down out of his place of honor and to begin to serve them. 
You know, at this time, like the way, this is a formal banquet that everybody would have been prepared for, everybody would have been dressed. I mean, this would have been the most significant kind of meal gathering of the year. And he is the leader. He's the Lord of the ceremonies. That's why we ask him, Lord, where are you going to serve the, the, the celebrate the Passover? He's kind of in charge. I mean, it's almost like one of our only kind of modern connections would be almost like if you were at a wedding and in the middle of the reception, in the middle of the dinner, you see the bride just get up, kind of go into the back, change out of her dress, throw on some scrubs and just start picking up dishes and start scrubbing them. You say, well, no, no, wait a second. Like, what are you doing? This is not, you're not supposed to be doing this right now. And you look at the, like, the Lord of the dinner, they don't, they don't stand up at dinner parties. They're the ones who are reclining in luxury. They don't strip down. They're the ones wearing the nicest clothes. They don't pour out the water. They're the ones who hold the microphone and are directing, directing the show. So it's no wonder that Peter doesn't understand what he's doing. Peter's like, no, no, wait, you can't do this. You can't, sir, you know, wash me. And then Jesus and Peter have this back and forth. I was reading this week a beautiful sermon from, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name, but he's been dead for almost 2,000 years, so he won't mind, but it's Severin of Galbala. So you might not know Galbala, but it's, uh, you know, I'm so glad that the uh, Olympics are coming soon because it can give us our biannual geography lesson. <laughs> and so Galbala is Azerbaijan, and Severin was born in 310. He was pastor of a thriving community of believers in the mid-4th century, all the way in, uh, I guess that's southwestern uh, Asia. And so on their services every night celebrating um, uh, Easter, listen to to these words from his sermon that he's trying to set it up because he wants them to feel the wonder of Jesus coming down and dining. uh, He said, the whole visible world proclaims the goodness of God. But nothing proclaims it so clearly as his coming among us, by which he whose state was when the divine one assumed the condition of a slave. This was not lowering of his dignity, but rather a manifestation of his love for us. The awesome mystery that takes place today. They're celebrating this is the Thursday of Holy Week. The awesome mystery that takes place today brings us to the consequence of his action. For what is it that takes place today? The Savior washes the feet of the disciples. And although he took upon himself everything pertaining to our conditions as slaves, he took a slave's position in a way specifically suited to our own arrangements. And that's watch as he rises from the table. He who feeds everything beneath the heavens was reclining among the apostles, the master among the slaves, the fountain of wisdom among the ignorant, the word among those untrained in the use of words, the source of wisdom among the unlettered. He who nourishes all was reclining and eating with the disciples. He who sustains the whole world was himself receiving sustenance. So first he's just marveling. Can you even believe that he's eating with them? It's a miracle. It's amazing that the word of life has come down just to eat with the disciples. Moreover, he was not satisfied with the great favor he showed his servants by sharing a meal with them. Peter and Matthew and Philip, they're men of the earth. 
They reclined with him while Michael and Gabriel and the whole army of angels stood by amazed. Oh, the wonder of it. The angels stood by in dread while the disciples reclined with him with utmost familiarity. It's this image of, I wonder if they even knew. They're sitting there reclining, having a meal with Jesus when the angels themselves are marveling. Can you believe you're privileged to sit and eat with him? But then even this marvel was not enough. He rose from the table, the scripture says. He rose, and then he clothed himself. The one clothed in light as a robe was then clothed in a common cloak. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped a towel around himself. He who pours water into the rivers and the pools tips some water into their dirty basin. And he before whom every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth bent his knee to wash their feet. Oh, the marvels. The marvels. That's the kind of preaching that's happening in 350 in Azerbaijan. And it is a marvel. It's a marvel. And then notice just the contrast between Peter and Jesus. Uh, In one sense, Peter betrays almost all the things we see that love's not, but in a subtle way. You know, Peter is arrogant because he can't can't receive uh, his love. He's rude because he tells Jesus, like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be uh, doing that. He tells him what to do. He's too proud to let Jesus serve him. And then he's going to boast that he's uh, he's clean and doesn't need to be washed. And then goes to the other end, well, wash my whole body and... You know, Peter misunderstood what the Lord was doing, and yet Jesus was gentle, and he was patient, and he was kind. All the things that love does. Peter, When Peter told him to stop, Jesus didn't get irritated, but kept serving. When Peter misunderstood him again and again, Jesus helped patiently explain what he was doing. When Peter demanded that Jesus wash his whole body, Jesus kindly assured him that he was already clean. He was already saved and didn't need that. In short, Jesus does exactly what love does. He's patient. He's kind. He's not irritable. And very soon we see on this night, this is the only beginning. This is the only beginning to the full extent of his love that he's going to show as it climaxes and culminates on the cross. But when you see, he treats us the same way. He doesn't get impatient with our misguided questions or angry with our repeated mistakes. He comes to us in love and kindly corrects us and patiently explains, again, week in and week out, the way of salvation. and even gives us physical, tangible things so we can see and touch and taste, so we can try and internalize it as He humbly serves. You know, it's such a beautiful picture that we follow a foot-washing Savior. And so if there's ever a time where you think, all right, that kind of service is not for me, that's not something I should be doing. Whenever you say that, you're claiming to be greater than your Lord. He serves with a towel around his waist. So secondly, how can we follow that example? You know, one of the beautiful things about this example, it utterly reorients how you think about greatness. You know, going into this night, remember on the way, or about the week before, on the way, all of the disciples spearheaded by James and John are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. When he rides in like a king and and crushes his enemies and takes his place on the seat of power, who's going to sit at his right and who's going to sit at the left? Who's going to be the greatest? Even had their mom coming and pleading with them that they would uh, that he would put her boys at those places, and all the other ones are angry. And then what he's showing is no, no, no. The way up is down. 
The way to influence is service. The way of happiness is to pursue the happiness of another. Now, I wonder what John thought at that moment, just days after him arguing with everybody about who should be the greatest, and here the greatest was stooped down washing his feet. So how can we uh, express this? You know, one of the things we have to look at is look for ways to stoop down. You know, one of the challenges is we can just refuse to stoop. Sometimes we won't stoop intellectually. You know, sometimes you'll hear it said of people, um, so, and people say this, and they mean it as a compliment. But I don't think, you know, it's like the Prince of Brad, I don't think that means what you think it means. Because <laughs> they'll say, you know, he never suffered fools gladly. I heard that at a memorial service about a famous theologian. He never suffered fools gladly. It's like, don't know if that's a good thing. He's not being tender and gentle with people who don't understand. Jesus suffers fools gladly. That's why we're all here. And so we don't stoop intellectually or don't stoop socially. No, those people. Those people. I can't interact with those people. Or maybe we have a conception of authority where it refuses to stoop, where it demands more than it gives, and it, it requires burdens that others carry that it won't carry itself. So it frees to stoop. But then notice what Jesus does is he utilizes the tools of his trade. He picks up a towel, picks up the basin. And just think for a moment, all right, what are the everyday tools around you that you can use to serve others? Maybe the tools of your service are pen and ink. And he wants you to pick those up and write words of life, words of encouragement to others. Maybe the tools of your trade to serve others is writing digital code. And he wants you to write it in such a way that serves others. Maybe the tools of your trade are dishes and detergent. You know, for everyone, the tools of our trade can be open eyes so we can see people, open ears so we can hear them, not dominating conversations, but seeking to encourage and edify. You know, in one sense, this would be shocking for them to experience, but then it's not surprising that one of the first hymns and celebratory songs the church would sing and develop is a song that we find in Philippians 2. And you go to Philippians 2, and there's these beautiful parallels that get woven into this song about how Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, grasped. But he made himself nothing by taking the, on the form of a servant. He stepped down out of heaven and was obedient all the way to the point of the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a place that is above all, a name that is above all other names. So at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And there's these beautiful parallels from the same language where uh, he steps out of his, his place and then he stoops down. He uh, steps out of his place and then he stoops down. And then he, he takes on the garment of the servant. He pours out the water just like he poured out his life. He washes their feet and then he wipes it away. So we should wonder at the wonders of his love. But for us, we don't just wonder that he rose from supper and laid aside his garments because this is, after all, the one who rose from his seat of heaven and took upon himself the form of a human so that he could sympathize with our every weakness. That's what we celebrate at Advent. 
And we should wonder that he took upon himself the tools of the servant, the towel and the basin. But we have even more reason to wonder because he takes upon himself the form of a servant. And we should wonder that he poured out the water into the basin to wash the disciples' feet. But even more, every single week, we get to wonder and celebrate that he poured out his blood to wash away the sinful, the, the sin that has distorted our souls. And we do wonder that he took the towel around his waist to wipe off their filthy feet, but we celebrate the fact that he's promised to come again and wipe away every tear from our eye and everything that dirties or distorts his world. And one day sin will be no more. You know, St. Augustine said that for proud humans would have perished eternally had they not been found by the lowly God who comes seeking and saving the lost. And he said, when we, we became lost by imitating the pride of the deceiver, but here we can be found by imitating the humility of the Redeemer. So that's why we come. We have to first experience this kind of love and then express it. I wanted actually all of us to take communion together and just remind ourselves about the beautiful imagery that what communion symbolizes, symbolizes our core responsibility and role as elders. It's our great privilege and gift. You know, on the night that he washed their feet, he also instituted this meal to symbolize all that he came to do for them and through them uh, into the world. And he took the bread, and one of the things that the bread symbolizes is the bread symbolizes his body. And he tells us man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And the great uh, task that elders have is to present and proclaim the word of the Lord that we live on, we feast on. This is our life. So let the, take the bread and let it remind you that my soul lives on his word just like my body lives on this bread. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the forgive my blood that shed for the forgiveness of sins. And one of the great privileges and honors that we have every week is to lead and to remind and to declare ourselves that the pathway to life, that a way has been made so we can enter into his presence and it comes through forgiveness, that his blood was shed on the cross to forgive us and bring us into his presence. So remind yourself of that truth. And now may the love of a serving Savior and the power of a risen Savior and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.